3: Hey, everybody. When we recorded the first part of this episode, the world was a different place. The concept of pandemic or the all too familiar COVID-19 were not even part of the lexicon. The beginning of this episode is more lighthearted and reflects the less serious and more playful side of personal finance. The second half was recorded March 26, 2020, and dives into the realities of our healthcare workers during this difficult time. Enjoy.
4: This is Sunwoo Lee. This is William McVeigh. This is Cindy Sai, and you're listening to the Earn and Invest Podcast.
3: It was all going so swimmingly. My wife and I had been dating for about three months, and we got to that point in our relationship where we decided to invite a few friends over for dinner. There was some cooking, and there was a little bit of wine and some beer, and everything was going really great until after the meal. And then my wife turned to her two friends and said, okay, let's pull out the board games. And as they all got excited, I felt the doom falling over me because I hate board games let me say that again i hate board games and i was three months into the relationship with my wife and this was the first place that we got stuck because pretty much we had almost everything else in common needless to say i survived that night and i've survived many more nights of board games but i've never really come to love them So you won't be surprised to know that I felt that same sense of doom when I went to a personal finance financial independence get together and somewhere in the middle of the conversation, everyone got excited and then they started pulling out board games. So this all begs the question, why do all the people I like seem to be so fond of board games and what the heck does that have to do with financial independence? And speaking of the board games we will play, as many of us are stuck at home, some of us will use this extra free time to become freelancers, small business people, and consultants. And what's even harder than getting that big job or account? It's getting paid for it once the work is done. That's why we are giving a big thanks to Joust for supporting Earn and Invest. Joust is the nation's only all-inclusive banking platform for the self-employed. PayArmor, Joust's invoice payment guarantee product, supports the 71% of the gig economy workforce that experiences non-payment. You can sign up for Joust for free at try.joust.com backslash earnpod and enter the promo code WUN and get $100 in credits. That's try.joust.com slash E-A-R-N-P-O-D. First, I'd like to introduce William McVeigh. He is the Chief Technology Officer of the Choose FI podcast. He is a father of two and financially independent. He is a go-to resource in our community on financial planning for special needs family members and an avid board game player. William, welcome back. You've now been on, I think this will be your third appearance, is that correct? Yes,
1: um, always a pleasure.
3: William is definitely one of our favorite guests, so he keeps on popping up. A part of that is that he can just talk about many, many different financial independence issues. Apparently, board games is one of them. Cindy Sai started playing chess at the age of seven and eventually was awarded the lifetime title of Woman International Master. She studied at Stanford and earned her MBA from Northwestern University. Cindy, you and I met at a Camp Fi in Joshua Tree, California.
4: Yep, that's right. And thanks so much for having me.
3: Oh, we are totally excited to have you here. And last but not least, Sunwoo Lee is a riddle wrapped up in an enigma. <laughs> he is the self-described as the one who corrects people for writing Roth in all caps because of course, Roth is a name. He is an ever-present attendee at all events, financial independence, and we are so happy to have him here today. Thank you, Sunwoo, for being on the show, thinking we've gone through a full year and you have not shown up yet. So I, I knew I had to find a subject you could speak on.
5: Yeah, well, happy
3: to be here. We are happy to have you. So, William, I want to start with you. You hit me as the kind of guy who grew up playing Dungeons & Dragons. Am I off here? I mean, was that something you did when you were a kid?
1: Yeah, not a single Dungeon & Dragon in my life. I was a classic board game, checkers, chess, risk with my father from an early age.
3: So no fantasy long-term board games like Dungeons & Dragons, huh?
1: Nope. Playing Blitzkrieg, World War II simulations as like an eight-year-old, but never Dungeons and Dragons.
3: Sunwoo, tell me, can you remember back, were you a big board game kid and what were some of the games you played?
5: No, I mean, I played like Monopoly and chess and checkers. But yeah, I didn't really get into board games until college.
3: Cindy, both Sunwoo and William have mentioned chess and chess, (laughs) that's something that took up a lot of your childhood. Is that true?
4: Yeah, um, I started playing since I was seven and was really lucky to just find the game. Some neighbor was teaching chess and I've always loved playing board games and decided to learn it and then started competing internationally since the age of 10. had a profound impact on my life.
3: Tell me about that transition. How do you go from just kind of playing in the neighborhood to competing internationally?
4: (laughs) Um, I think I was just really lucky to have parents who didn't know how to play chess, but supported me. And I just started competing. And, you know, they always say like chess, there is some talent. and But I think a lot of it is also hard work. And I was just lucky to find something I was talented at and to have the support to be able to get coaching and travel to play in tournaments and things like that.
3: William, I'm interested in this idea. You are the chief technology officer for Choose FI, and most of us in the financial independence community seem to be fairly tech-oriented. On the other hand, we also seem to love board games, which seems incredibly low-tech. I mean, chess is as low-tech as you can get. Why the love of board games and not more digital games? Like, when you were growing up, did you play a lot of computer and digital games, or was it more old-school board games?
1: We had an Atari when they first came out. And so, I mean, I was big into video games too, but even before the Atari came out, I was playing board games with my dad, with my sister, and they've just always been something that been part of my life. Yeah, I don't have anything against video games. I had a video game problem probably early 90s. I realized that I would fall into a rabbit hole. And so I pretty much avoided them by intention. But board games is something that I find to be a lot more social sitting across the table from somebody.
3: Sunwoo, why not digital? No one talks about people having a board game problem, but we certainly heard about video game problems. Did you have video game problems growing up?
5: Growing up, my parents didn't really let me play too often, so I never really had a problem with that. I think board games are more accessible to people than video games, and it's definitely more social, for sure. Oftentimes with video games, you're playing online, like you're not meeting in person. Sure, there are like LAN parties and stuff, but in general, you're not meeting in person, and I think that fosters a lot more connection.
3: Cindy, speaking of financial independence and being frugal, right? chess doesn't cost anything. If you look at the video games, the digital games, if you have to buy the remotes and the newest version, I mean, it's pretty expensive. It doesn't cost much to play chess, at least not in the beginning.
4: Yeah, in the beginning, you can get a chess set for like $18. But I guess as you start progressing, there is a lot of theory and coaching and lessons can take up money as well. And certainly traveling to tournaments and entry fees and all of It's not quite as lucrative as, say, a a game like poker, where there's just like millions on the line. (laughs) But uh, I guess it's what you make of it. But I think that's the beauty of chess. It really connects people of all different cultures, all socioeconomic levels. doesn't matter if you're male or female. It's just a great way to connect people.
3: I didn't even think about that, but you probably had to pay for all of your travel, etc. When you started getting into these international tournaments, is that right?
4: Well, domestically, but as the U.S. Chess representative, you know the U.S. Chess Federation did pay for like my travels, but not, of course, for you know anyone traveling with you, like my mom. I was very lucky to have uh, my local community in Florida support me and have fundraisers to help all of that.
3: So William, let's talk about this idea of financial independence and board games. Do you remember when you started noting this connection that those two seemed to travel together?
1: Well, so board games have been with me for as long as I can remember. Financial independence, I joined the community or consider myself to join the community about five years ago. There was a a large overlap that I noticed between the people who who like to play games when they meet up with people and the folks that I was meeting up with. So I'd say I saw it five years ago when I joined the community, but I don't think that that's by no means when it started.
3: And Sunwoo, the two things I seem to notice at financial independence get-togethers are board games and what's the other one?
5: alcohol. Yeah, Yeah. exactly.
3: Beer, certainly craft beer, but some type of alcohol or another. What do you think is more ubiquitous to the community?
5: I'd say probably the alcohol more than the board games. Yeah. I mean, there are definitely some people that aren't necessarily interested in board games. I I was actually surprised to learn that you sandbagged us, I think, when you start, (laughs) you, you introduced yourself in this podcast saying, yeah, so I actually don't like board games very much.
3: Well, I'm an outsider. And that's why, I actually, to me, that's why this conversation is so interesting because it's not something I naturally feel an affection for, but yet a lot of the people who have similar interests that I like to get together with. And we all love talking about financial independence. And it's like all of a sudden the board game comes out and I'm like, okay, I'm going to sit here in the corner. So <laughs> to me, that's something worth talking about because yeah. I, I think it's interesting. Do you think there are other people, Sunwoo, in the community like me? Because I, I don't see it as much. Maybe we're too afraid to speak up, but whenever I seem to come to one of these financial independence get-togethers, people just like, boom, they're right over the board games.
5: I think it's just harder to notice the people that don't like them. They don't necessarily voice their opinions and they just go have a conversation with somebody else.
3: Cindy, I'm wondering, is there a difference between chess and other board games? I mean, chess seems so serious to me. There's lots of strategy and lots of thought involved. Maybe the board games now have evolved to be something similar but do they feel the same to you? Do you get interested in maybe a little less strategy heavy board games, like the ones we see at a lot of these get togethers?
4: There's a huge spectrum of board games. And um, I wouldn't consider myself a hardcore board gamer in the sense that I played Puerto Rico once, but (laughs) it was pretty complicated. But I also enjoy like party games, like Sushi Go Party or like Exploding Kittens. I think that's the beauty of the games is that there's different contexts for a different play. Like I enjoy Ticket to Ride Europe, for example, you know, there's a smaller group, but there's a bigger group just to get everyone involved. I think games are a great way to do so, even without alcohol.
3: <laughs> I was about to say the alcohol helps though. I, you know, I've seen certainly a number of fights break out after there was in a disagreement about some of the rules of some of these board games. You know, it, it can get dangerous out there if you're not careful.
4: One thing to mention is that, I guess... There is a difference with chess that it? it is much more of an individual sport, I would say, versus some of these other games where it's just enough strategy where it's fun and you can replay it multiple times, but also social enough where there's more interaction with other people.
1: There's actually an entire genre of board games known as cooperative games where you're not competing against each other, but you're competing against the game. So all the active players are actually trying to get a common victory condition before the game mechanics actually conspire against you to force everybody to lose. So it's an all-win-or-all-lose prospect.
3: Sunwoo, are these money games? I noticed that the old school monopoly is one of the ways, in fact, I learned about money, but not necessarily the games we play at these get-togethers. Is there a concentration on money themes or not at all? I mean, I've played a couple that involve
5: money, but in general, there's not really a focus on money games. I would say that there's a good number of economic-based games. Yeah, uh, so I would say economics, right? Not necessarily like strictly money
1: there's the board games that a lot of people grew up playing, things like Monopoly and Parcheesi, and and then there's lately among the board game community a surging interest in what are called Euro games or Euro style games, and those have a very much as opposed to like war games that we grew up playing. A lot of the Euro style games are focused on economies and building up resources and using those resources to accomplish victory conditions games like puerto rico like cindy mentioned Agricola. there's just a bunch of games where you still are building an economic engine but that's leading towards a victory condition but it's not so much like monopoly where your goal is to end the game with the most money for example
3: Cindy, do you think that some of these games are instructional, that maybe we could get some of our ideas about financial independence or about personal finance out to the world by interesting them in these board games, which talk about economies and building wealth?
4: I think chess and other games, even like Settlers of Catan, where it suddenly hit mainstream a number of years ago, it's about setting yourself up and evaluating what what we call in chess imbalances in the board and making sure you take a little advantage and make it work for you and play your own game. I would say in chess some people could say there's like two styles of playing. There's tactical play as well as positional play, which is a little bit of misnomer because if you're a great player, you can play both. But tactical play is much more of a flashy, more aggressive style of play, you know, make sacrifices more risky versus positional play is a little bit more slow, squeeze, slow and steady. And I think in some ways that relates very much with financial independence and just the idea of investing in index funds and kind of doing the slow long-term play, just playing your own game, not necessarily getting caught up on like the emotional highs and lows of the stock market. I think many ways chess and maybe other board games as well, it's very psychological and you have to keep your cool and think for the long term.
1: Another aspect that I like about board games is that a lot of games that I personally enjoy deal with inflection points. So as I mentioned before, um, some of the games have an economic component, but the economic component is not necessarily the victory condition. The victory condition is having a certain number of points. In a lot of these games, you have to be aware of when you should be developing your economy, Or when you should start using that economy to change to actually the victory condition. I see that there's a lot of parallel with financial independence where, sure, there's an accumulation phase. But at some point, life's not about just making money. It's about actually being happy, recognizing inflection points in life as well as in games I see as having a parallel.
3: So, what Cindy and William are talking about, does that hold resonance for you? Do you see similar themes in the board games as within attaining financial independence?
5: I'd say so. Yeah. Like William said, there are definitely games that have inflection points where you need to start using the resources that you've accumulated to actually progress through the game. Like in life, with financial independence, you have to decide on the trade-off between taking a higher paying job, but perhaps it would be a decrease in your quality of life.
3: Cindy, one of the similarities I see is competitiveness, right? So when you get a bunch of people together to play one of these board games, the real competition comes out. And I'm wondering if that's similar to the competitiveness that maybe we in the financial independence community have in our careers or in our investing or even in our side hustles. Are we a competitive crew?
4: I could see it being competitive cause you're really trying to optimize your time and your resources and trying to do your best all the way so that you can set yourself up for a long-term future. One of the things about games is that I learned to be less competitive and be more selective about when I'm being competitive. Just like the community, when you surround yourself with great people who have great ideas, it's not like a zero-sum game. Every When you surround yourself with great people, everyone rises. And I see that when I was playing in chess tournaments, I'd be friends with my so-called rivals. And yes, at the board, we fought really hard. But after the game, we were friends. And ultimately, everyone just supports each other. There's... A lot of different ways to win, so to say, in fourth war games as well as in achieving financial independence. So I think that's really great to be able to share those ideas and learn from each other.
3: William, are we a competitive community? I'd say so,
1: but not at the expense of... Other people, Sunwoo and I have played games together, and we learn from each other, and we come back and play again. So it's not like this is a one-time thing, and he's defeated me, and so therefore I hold a grudge. Um, no, I mean, I mean it's that's what you that we think. From. I
3: was about to say, Sunwoo, you usually beat William, though, when you when you play board <laughs> games with him, right? I just want to make sure. About
1: uh, I don't know about that. I think we're pretty even. Yeah, pretty balanced in general, yeah. and that tends to be the best type of games if you're. Yeah, if you're playing against somebody who's massively outclass you, there are some games that are really good at balancing so that someone can't go off and leave you with no hope.
3: Someone will tell me, I want to get more into specifically what games people are playing nowadays. What's your current favorite and why? My current favorite is
5: probably Splendor because for how simple the rules are, there is a lot of strategy involved. And it's an economic engine building game. You get tokens to buy gem cards and you use the gem cards to buy more gem cards and eventually the gem cards get you points and you win the game. I like that it's quick to explain so I can get people started. Now for them to become good at it, it takes several plays, but to at least get started, it's pretty quick.
3: Cindy, what's your current favorite board game and why?
4: A lot of times when I play board games, it's with my family, my immediate family. And so the game that we keep going back to is Ticket to Ride Europe. I think it's just fun uh, to be able to kind of setting up your strategy at the beginning and then executing and adapting and observing where your opponents are doing and pivoting as needed. It's just, I think, easy to learn and easy to play again and again.
3: All right. So Sunwoo has Splendor, which is building up your economic engine. Cindy has Ticket to Ride Europe, which is travel hacking. (laughs) William, (laughs) William, what is your current favorite board game and why?
1: This is a really hard one for me because it really depends on who I'm playing with. My experience playing a game is going to vary so much if I'm playing against Cindy. I mean, I'm going to choose chess because that's a game <laughs> that really good at and it's a game that I'm going to learn from. If I'm playing Sun Wu for Christmas game, that I know that he has tiny epic galaxies. And I've been having a lot of fun with that, but If we're playing the four of us, I'd probably choose something different. So a game like Stone Age, which is a worker placement game where you're collecting resources and are building a little civilization of Stone Age people. I find that to be fun. It really depends on what kind of games people are into. If I'm doing an introductory game, if someone likes abstract or puzzle solving, a game like Azul might be a good choice because it's trying to solve something that's just abstract like tiles. It really depends.
3: William, I'd like to give you a little credit here, because if I was playing a board game with Cindy, I specifically would stay away from (laughs) Jess. (laughs) (laughs) I just want to make that clear, because I'd want to have like a prayer of winning. I probably would lose regardless of the board game, but Jess Jess specifically, (laughs) I might stay away
1: from him chess doesn't have a whole lot of easy ways to handicap somebody one of my favorite games of all time is go i love go it goes back to ancient times but it's still actively played now it's actually a part of emerging ai for example just only recently that ai has been able to defeat the best grandmasters in go it has a very elegant handicap mechanism where i could play a grandmaster and go And it might require a huge handicap, but it's still possible for me to be competitive maybe and adapt to the strength difference between the two players.
3: Sunwoo, I feel like you show me the games someone played as a child. I will understand and know more about them as an adult. Talk to me a little bit about what you think the role of board games have played in your adult success. Has it been connected at all?
5: To some extent. I think it provides a nice... Social aspect; it gets people together. So recently, in the Choose a Atlanta group, we started playing board games outside of the normal meetups. Yeah, and that's been fun. Uh, we've been getting together once every couple weeks or so. It's just another way to meet people. The group of people that shows up to these board game events—it's a lot fewer people that show up. You get to know them a lot better, which is really nice.
3: Cindy, I'd ask you the same question. Talk about the role you think chess played in your success as an adult.
4: I think it's really had a big impact. Learning chess as a kid, you learn like a lot of lifelong skills like critical thinking, time management, having patience and sitting at a board and doing the best you can. And I think that it has helped me to have the privilege of going to top schools like Stanford and Kellogg. And even in my professional career now as a marketer, I think marketing like chess is a blend of the art, science, and sport, and having to use both your left brain and right brain thinking. So games in general and chess, you just learn to study, test, learn, adapt, and trust your intuition ultimately, because all that practice, you'll be able to trust your gut feeling.
3: William, we talk about how to bring up financially savvy children, but the question really is how to bring up well-rounded children. Should we be playing board games with our kids? Is that one of these life hacks, just like teaching them about finances?
1: I think so. I'm biased because that's how I was brought up. And I think it does build character. I think if you had to ask me like, what the impact has been in my life, I would say grit. My dad never threw a game when I was learning chess. I was introduced to chess pie when I was six, seven, or so, and it wasn't until I was ten that I won my first game against my dad. But that was the game that we played over and over and over. We would uh, cross the board. He would explain what he's thinking, and I'd explain what I was thinking. And yeah, I mean, and I can remember after years just the joy and elation that I had when I had my first actual hard won win against him that I knew was real. So yeah, I think grit is a big factor in teaching kids with games.
4: Yeah, I totally agree with you, William. I think chess in particular really does teach grit and the ability to just get up and continue studying hard and playing. And, and actually that was the best way that I learned growing up was always playing two classes above my actual level in tournaments. And that was the way to just improve really quickly because when you play against much stronger players, you can really learn a lot and just continue to grow.
5: Back to what William was saying. When I was growing up, I would play Chinese chess and I'd always lose. Instead of like William, I did not keep trying. I actually just rage quit because I was tired of losing. At the time, I was just angry. So one day I learned about standard chess and I came home and I taught my dad the rules and I was like, oh, like this is a game he hasn't played before. Maybe I'll actually win and he still beat me because I mean, he's just good at games. And I didn't learn my lesson then about not just rage quitting, not getting emotional about it. I fully appreciate that now, though. That was a valuable lesson that I learned, even though I didn't learn it when I should have.
3: William, it almost sounds like these early experiences with board games taught us a lot about life and failure. Maybe it's an easy way for kids to learn about failure. If you experience some
1: disappointment, but realize that it's not the end of the world and that you know, there's a next game that you can try again and try to do better the total purpose of the game isn't necessarily to win, but to, to learn and to do better the next
3: time. I was just mentally, again, making my checklist here. So no chess with William, no chess with Cindy, <laughs> but maybe Chinese chess with Sunwoo. <laughs> Yeah, we could give it a try. (laughs) Speaking of that and me and what I'm making a list about playing and not playing, what do you say to our community members who aren't interested in the board games? Sunwoo, is there anything wrong if you want to sit them out and just sit in the back and nurse your beer and watch everyone else play?
5: No, there's nothing wrong with that. I do think that for somebody who is hesitant to play, playing a cooperative board game is probably the best place to start because... They can start at the beginning, and if they don't like it, they can leave, and we can still keep playing that board game because it's cooperative and like somebody else can play two roles. That's probably where I would start with somebody who doesn't necessarily like board games.
1: If you come to board games with bad experiences as a kid, and the only board games that you were exposed to are things like Monopoly, or even if you were exposed to chess and you didn't like it, board games have evolved so much across a wide variety of genres. So a lot of people think board games are only war games. And there are a lot of just happy games that have themes that have nothing to do with conflict. If you don't like economic games, there you don't have to play economic games. You can do a wide variety of different types and styles of games. I wouldn't let past experience dictate future decisions like that.
3: Cindy, so... I met you at a Camp Fi, and I've hung out with Sunwoo and William at FinCon. Would you go to a financial independence-oriented board game con if someone put one out?
4: Absolutely. <laughs> that was one of the things I loved about Camp Fi was the board games, the hiking, all these things that I already naturally love doing. And board games is an amazing way to just connect with different people. I'd absolutely love to attend something like that.
3: William, in the Choose Fi local groups, it sounds like more and more are setting up these board game get-togethers. Am I incorrect on that?
1: We want to help people find their community. And whether it's a community of gamers or a community of craft beer aficionados or people who like going to coffee, we think that helping people find community of people um, kind of on the same path as them helps in general. Board games are just one aspect of that, I would say.
3: And Sunwoo, we're all very entrepreneurially oriented. Any thoughts of
5: creating your own board game after being an avid player all these years? No, I uh, I don't think I have that kind of creativity for creating my own board game. I certainly enjoy playing them. but Cindy, going to create the next chess?
4: <laughs> I love board games. So I think at some point I'd love to create my own, but not the moment.
3: Yeah, William, I was about to say board games are fun and they're certainly connected to financial independence, but probably not the best way to attain financial independence. You're not going to be a sponsored board game player and make it to 25 times.
1: It's not an income producer, um, but it can be a money saver. If you look at opportunity cost of putting 20 or $30 into a game, that gives you X number of hours of replayability versus putting the same amount of money into a night out on the town. I've got games that I've bought over 10 years ago that I still pull out and play. So yeah, I mean, it's not something you're going to make a whole lot of money on, but it's not something that you're going to spend a whole lot of money on. Unless you want, there are certainly games that you can drop a ton of money if that's the thing that appeals to you.
3: So it sounds like putting everything together, board games are a wonderful way, especially as a kid, to learn about strategy. They're a wonderful way to learn about success and failure. And as we grow older and play them with our friends, it's a great way to build community, which it seems like that's what we've done here in our financial independence community. Anything else to add? Any other benefits uh, that we want? everyone to know about reason why they should go out and start playing board games today. I'll run through the whole panel. William, anything else we forgot? So in addition to the strategic thinking
1: about like, okay, need to win, I personally have found, especially when playing chess, almost empathy. So you have to try and put yourself into the other person's perspective. You have to look at the board in the view that the other person is seeing it and what are they trying to accomplish, not just what you're personally trying to accomplish, uh, because obviously you want to thwart their plans, but being able to get outside of your head and not think about necessarily what you want, but what they're looking to achieve through the same board position, I think is
5: very valuable.
3: Sunwoo, empathy was one I didn't see coming. Any other added benefits of board games you want to throw out there?
5: I mean, it goes into the strategic thinking aspect, but there are definitely board games where you can make moves that will benefit you in the short term, but aren't the best move long term. And I think financial independence is, of course, all about maximizing your long term returns.
3: Certainly in investing, too. We see people right. make those mistakes all the time where they're looking at short term gains or losses and sell too quickly and forget to hold on to things because they don't understand the long term play. So I think that really hits home. Young people, especially, could learn from board game playing how to be patient and how to think right. down the horizon. Cindy, last words, benefits of board games we haven't covered?
4: With games, you just learn good sportsmanship, just being able to know when to turn it on and off. And it's all about fun at the end of the day and being humble because if you play these games, you're going to lose some, you're going to win some. But ultimately, everyone has fun. And also, they say that if you play chess, you don't get Alzheimer's, (laughs) or at least it's been correlated with that. So as we continue to age and maybe even stop professional careers or whatever. It's a great way to keep the mind sharp.
3: Certainly you guys have opened my mind. So I will make sure that at our next get together, I volunteer first to play whatever board game is pulled out. I want to go through each one of you guys and give us a chance to tell us what's up next in your life and where can we find you starting with you, William, what's up next and where can we find you on the internet?
1: Mostly hanging out on Facebook. What's up next. For 2020, I've kind of resolved to do more writing personally. So I've answered a lot of questions, but I find myself repeating myself a lot. And I think if I actually wrote down some of my answers to questions, I could reuse them better. So I want to do a little bit more writing.
3: And I think we'd all look forward to that. A lot of us know you through your work with Choose FI, as well as meeting you in person. And uh, I'm sure many of us would love to hear what you have to say. So we look forward to that. Sun Wu, what's up next in your life? And where can we find you on the internet if you want to be found?
5: <laughs> That's a good question. Do I actually want to be found? I will finally be graduating with my PhD this year. So that'll be exciting. And then I'll find a job somewhere, hopefully. You can find me at my blog. It's at sunlily.com. And I totally agree, William. My primary reason for starting my blog was to write down my thoughts so that I don't have to keep answering the same question over and over and over. I recently quit Twitter and Facebook. So that is basically the only place that you can find me
3: that was always the way I was contacting Sun Wu in the past. And all of a sudden I went to look at his social and I couldn't find him on any of the messaging apps. So (laughs) there you go. Moral of the story is always get everyone's email address. Cindy, where can we find you and what is up next in your life?
4: I guess you can find me on Facebook. (laughs) I don't have a blog or anything, but maybe this year I'll start one or maybe create a board game.
3: Maybe you need to create a board game and that will be the one that I will volunteer to play. So I'm
4: definitely <laughs> looking
3: forward to it.
1: Cindy, you actually have an Etsy shop that you pointed me to when we talked.
4: Yes.
3: <laughs> what do you sell on Etsy?
4: I like to do digital art and pastel painting. So I've done some chess and animal art uh, in the past.
3: Very cool. So maybe that your fondness of chess as a child will lead to a side hustle. So there you go. <laughs> All right. Well, this has been the What's Up Next podcast. I'd like to thank Cindy Tsai, Sunwoo Lee, and William McVeigh. That's a wrap. I'd like to take a pause for a moment and recap. In the first half of the show, Cindy, William, and Sunwoo discussed the importance of board games in our intellectual and financial upbringing. After the break, we will delve into the realities of our healthcare workers during this difficult time. But before we do, I wanted to say thanks to Joust for supporting Earn and Invest. Have you ever thought about starting your own business? Perhaps you wanted to begin a side hustle or passion project, but weren't sure where to begin. Ensuring a steady income will always be one of the first things you think of and could be the reason why you don't eventually take the leap. Joust is the nation's only all-inclusive banking platform for the self-employed. Business banking can feel complicated, but Joust makes it easy. PayArmor, Joust's invoice payment guarantee product, supports the 71% of the gig economy workforce that experiences non-payment. You can sign up for Joust for free at try.joust.com earnpod and enter the promo code WUN and get $100 in credits. That's try.joust.com slash e-a-r-n-p-o-d. USA.com. That's landroverusa.com. So today is March 26, 2020. And I have a group of healthcare practitioners together here today. The reason why I wanted to have them together to have this conversation is most of us are reading the newspapers, we are looking at our social media feeds. And It's hard for us to know what it's really like out there in the world where we're seeing these COVID viruses and people getting sick. For those of us who are either shut up in our home or in a city in which they haven't seen much coronavirus, it's somewhat surreal reading all of these articles and yet not seeing it or feeling it. On our own. Now, I am a physician. I call myself Doc G, and I am a doctor. On the other hand, I practice hospice and I am not out on the field on a regular basis seeing patients. So I thought I would bring a few people in who are either in the field themselves or at least fairly close to it. Let's start with Lynn Frere. Lynn is the founder of FiHealthcare.com. This is a crowdsourced, knowledge based website for healthcare options for the financially independent retire early crowd. It's phihealthcare.com. She's also worked various roles as a nurse in hospice and home health. And Lynn, you are right there in the midst of a Seattle area hospital near the epicenter, which we've heard about in the news.
0: Yes, there is a lot of activity here in this area, and they have been calling it an epicenter. It's a little bit, I would say, overall intense and interesting to navigate. So I'm on the hospice end of home care services on the operation side of talking with the families.
3: A lot of people don't realize how much planning has to go into the possible influx of patients even though it hasn't happened yet in many states around the country. We also have Nasima McElroy here. She is the writer behind the blog Financially Intentional. She also hosts the Nurses on Fire podcast and is a labor and delivery nurse in Oakland, California. Labor and delivery is a touchy subject. I've already heard a lot of people starting to complain about the restrictive visitation rules.
2: Yes, yes, yes. And I'm right there. I'm the enforcer. <laughs>
3: If any of you guys don't know Nasima, I know her and I'm sure she is a fabulous enforcer. So (laughs) Lynn, let me start with you. I did a podcast recently with JL Collins and I titled it, Are We Overreacting? And certainly in the last few weeks, especially in the last few days, it seems like we're polarized. Half the people feel like this is going to be horrendous and we have to hunker down and do everything we can. And then the other half feel like we're overreacting and driving our economy into the ground for no reason. Tell me how it feels for you, someone who's directing people out in the field in one of these incredibly sensitive geographical areas right now.
0: I definitely have a lot of thoughts on it. I think for a lot of people, they don't see the impact of the virus at all. So they look outside, it's sunny. What's difficult to know is that we don't really know the full extent of this. It can be hard to know how much of this anxiety is well-deserved and how much is not. But by the time we make the decision... We will be making the decision for about two to three weeks down the line. And I think a lot of those of us in healthcare, we are concerned that our actions are going to be impacting the future. And so we're vigilant about that. I think your podcast that you recorded was excellent. I hope that I'm wrong in terms of how concerned, but I think we need to balance the health of our population with the economic pieces of it. I think they're both important, but if we don't have a healthy population, we have trouble with the economy as well.
3: Nesima, labor and delivery tends to be a pretty happy place. It wouldn't be a place where I would figure the coronavirus would have a lot of effect, but it's affecting your job quite a bit, isn't it?
2: Very much so. The way that we perform our care is different because we have to limit everybody who comes on the floor. There are some units that are totally shut down to visitors, but we, at my hospital, at this point, because everything is day by day, we are only allowing one support person. They come, they're encouraged not to leave, they're encouraged not to bring outside food, they have to eat in the hospital. And usually the average stay for labor and delivery from admission to discharge is about three days. But if they are exhibiting any kind of symptoms, we have to tell them to stay home and either somebody else has to be there. So a dad is potentially missing the birth of his child or a partner or just moms are by themselves. It's pretty tough.
3: Tell me about how widespread you guys feel like coronavirus is in your area. Are there multiple positive cases in your hospital system?
2: Oh, we have multiple cases, then it keeps on exponentially growing because we have the increased capacity to test. So how we quantify it is the number of confirmed cases and the number of suspected cases. We have one dedicated unit for coronavirus cases outside of the ICU. And within that unit, we have a special labor and delivery room or suite, I should say, to deal with patients that are positive. But there is still a pretty long screening process that takes place on our floor where, you know, we have newborn babies and moms and babies in the NICU and peds all combined. So we're exposing a lot of people in that process.
3: Talk to me, Nasima, a little bit about how people's attitudes and feelings about work change as you guys have seen more and more coronavirus? Have you noticed that healthcare workers are acting differently?
2: Oh my God, everybody is so scared. And fear brings about sometimes the worst in people. And we are usually like a familiar place. We're all family. Like we've known each other for years, but it's a lot of tension now. Everybody is scared about other people bringing the virus and everybody is scared about- upholding these new rules, every time there's something that changes, everybody is making sure um, that everybody is complying to it. And so there's a lot of fear. And I think it has an effect on how we're able to deliver care because it has to be at the forefront of our care. Something that we've never had to deal with is at the forefront of our care. And we're spending so much time there. Everybody's on edge. Everybody wants to protect themselves. People don't feel protected. There's masks and gowns being locked up. There's no sanitizer. The wipes are being on lockdown. So people are in constant fear. It's bad.
3: Lynn, talk a little bit about what Nasima is addressing here. I mean, don't we all have this PPE, this personal protective equipment that's supposed to help us? Why are healthcare providers afraid?
0: We're seeing in this region rationing of PPE. It's kind of changing every day. I think the issue is more that this looks like it could be a marathon of PPE needs. And it's on any one day we could do this. We could absorb this. You know, we're used to influxes of various things in healthcare. We're used to flu season. We're prepared for that. But if we get an influx of patients, an influx of respiratory disease, How can we manage them and how do we decide to triage and how do we decide to ration when we don't really know the future of what we'll need and we don't really know how quickly it can be produced? I think that a lot of healthcare providers that I've talked to are concerned and it's a concern of the unknown. I think we're concerned about being overly concerned and we're also very concerned about being under-concerned. And so it's a nebulous place to be.
3: Lynn, you and I are both in hospice. And I've often got the question from non-medical people, well, you're in hospice, this doesn't really affect you. Can you talk about some of the ways it affects hospice workers and the families they take care of?
0: We're everywhere in the region that I've seen. We are working on essential visits now and sort of seeing if we can phone triage. And we're also wearing PPE goggles and masks. And when somebody is at end of life and you're trying to establish a therapeutic relationship with them, but also keep them and their family safe and your family safe, that's a difficult quandary. You know, we are used to death and dying, but this is a different way to navigate through. And so there are some things that we just haven't seen before. The way that it presents respiratory-wise is a bit different. And so we're not quite sure what exactly to expect. And that can be a little bit unsettling.
3: Nasima, Lynn just said we're used to seeing people die. But one thing we're not used to is being afraid that we ourselves might get very sick in the course of taking care of patients. Tell me a little bit about the fears of the healthcare practitioners you're seeing about getting sick. I know there have been a number of stories about doctors in China and Italy, and even in the United States, emergency room physicians contracting COVID and getting very ill.
2: We haven't seen it on our unit of people getting sick, but to speak to that fear, like normal things that people do, like clear their throat, cough, um, have a little bit of like any kind of congestion is raising a lot of red flags. What the hospital has done so far is to screen every person, every employee. Now we've locked down our entrances to the hospital. And so we're screening every employee for a fever, which we don't necessarily know is predictive of the disease, but of contact. Have you been asked to self-quarantine? Those kind of questions are asked every day that we're going into our shift. I honestly think that people have been exposed to it or have (laughs) have had it at some level, but we might not necessarily be manifesting symptoms.
3: Lynn, let's talk a little bit about those fears further. Again, as you read through social media, et cetera, there are a lot of people out there who feel like this is just a run-of-the-mill flu. Why is this more scary? I think
0: about this a lot, and I've had to really limit my social media exposure because I really can't handle seeing this and seeing what I see during the day. And your question was, why is this different? fear of the unknown is very very common right and i love to think of myself as trying new things just stepping into the fear being brave being okay with a, a imperfect outcome but i think what a lot of us are doing and we see this in hospice is anticipatory grief where We are worried about what could happen and how that could impact people that we know, people that we care for, ourselves, our families, and we don't have the extent of that yet. So I'm trying to stay very, very much in the present But I also, with my healthcare hat on and what I'm seeing, can't help but have a little bit of anticipatory grief and fear around that, even though I'm trying to stay in the present.
3: Lynn, I think one of the big criticisms people make is that we are afraid of what might happen as opposed to we're afraid by what is happening. There was a recent video put out, I forget whether it was on CNN, et cetera, from a doctor in New York, where she was talking about the stress she was currently facing, not the anticipatory stress, but the current stress at this point in time, do you feel like some of these stories are overblown or is what you're seeing or hearing about right there on the ground where you are? Is it as bad as people are making it sound?
0: Fear serves a good purpose. I think a lot of times and other times it doesn't right now. We don't really know how effective that fear is. So I am concerned seeing what I'm seeing. The the concerns that I have is our PPE and our access to ventilators. I think those are the biggest concerns that I have in this area.
3: Have they had a problem with the ventilator
0: supply? What I see in hospice is we have a fair amount of positive patients and they're having respiratory issues, or we have a lot of suspected positive patients that are staying in their homes. There's a risk to coming in and there's you know, a benefit to providing the care in the home if we can safely do so.
3: Nesima, we know that news can be salacious, right? They always make a big deal out of everything. So why should this be any different? Isn't this just the news media making a good story and scaring
2: us? (laughs) <laughs> I am one of those people that don't watch the news because I do feel like that. But then I think that a lot of the things that the news is putting out right now is precautionary and that in some ways we should take heed to because this is scary for us on the front lines because we're the ones who have to provide the care. So as many people that don't come to the hospital, as many people that stay home can flatten the curve. And so take it as what you can do to serve and not take it as something to inside panic.
3: Lynn, but people say that we're ruining the economy, right? Especially with this whole idea of lockdown. Maybe we just need to start going back to the restaurants, start allowing people to gather, realize that there will be some people who contract this disease and die from it, but eventually we'll get that so-called herd immunity and then move on with our lives. Do you think that's a spurious argument?
0: Well, I think it's complex and multifaceted. I think everything in life has trade-offs. And so we have to decide what we're willing to trade off. And what's hard is we don't really know the true risk yet because it's in that part of the curve that we think may be exponential. Some of the data suggests that it is exponential. That's what is hard. We're trying to make trade-offs for our present As an assumption of a future. I think it's complex and I think it's going to depend on who you ask because of their priorities, their individual experiences. Yeah, so it's going to vary.
3: Nesima, do you think national policy is going to change anytime soon? Do you see us going off shelter in place? You're in California, I'm in Chicago, we both are currently shelter in place states. Do you think it's going to be a while or are we going to be free by Easter?
2: I think it's going to be a while. I think that our state governor in California is kind of being very conservative when it comes to this and not necessarily waiting for national politicians to decide. And he's being very proactive, which I appreciate for our sake. So we were one of the first places to shut down the hospitals, which was, you know, difficult for me because at the same time I had um, my grandfather in the hospital who's 91 who can't really hear, but understandable from the front lines.
3: And Lynn, one of the things I've noticed is most of the naysayers I hear are not medical people. In fact, I have to say that almost hands down, every doctor, infectious disease specialist, epidemiologist has seemed to think that we are not overreacting. And it's been a very rare scientific voice that says that we are. Has that been your experience too?
0: Yes, what I've seen is that people who work in healthcare are taking this very seriously and more so each day. The people who have been naysayers have traditionally that I've seen been outside of healthcare and I'm hearing those voices quiet and I've heard several apologies. I've even heard apologies from families that said they wish they would have taken it more seriously. So I would agree with that.
3: Nasima, how do you think this is all gonna resolve itself? What do you think's coming in the next six months?
2: I see a lot more shelter in place. I see a lot more social distancing. I just see people taking this more seriously. And hopefully people have an understanding that without us all playing a role in making sure that people are safe, it's not gonna flatten the curve.
3: And Lynn, any predictions about which is the right move for the economy in general? I've been a big advocate of the idea that if you don't take care of people's health, it's gonna be ruinous to the economy anywhere. So I don't like this whole dichotomy of the nation's economy versus the nation's health, because I think they're one and the same. But I'm wondering what your outlook is on it.
0: Yes, I would completely agree. If we don't take care of the health of our folks, we have trouble with our economy. Um, As somebody who started investing when I was 12, I've been very closely looking at both sides of things. (laughs) And what I hope, I'm very hopeful that we have a lot of issues that are going to arise from unemployment, that we could see those resources, people's talents being shifted in a way that is innovative and creative that we've never seen before, because we've never had to develop and evolve like this before. So what I hope is for people who have lots of resources, like folks in the fire community, not just finance resources, but creativity resources to use to spur innovation so that the negative effects are mitigated while also controlling the healthcare effects.
3: Naseem, are you feeling that same optimism?
2: Definitely. I feel like this is a time of opportunity. It's a time for people to think outside the box of things that they can do I think this is a time for a total shift in how we look at working, period, how we look at educating our kids, period, and just a lot of opportunity for growth. I've
0: also thought long, actually, about healthcare and why we don't do more things remotely. So we have, in this evolution, more access to video conference, video chat. Why do we bring people to one location who have a disease And they are close contact with people who have also diseases, but probably other diseases, all in the same place. You know, I've always questioned that, and I see certainly some benefit to that. But I do wonder why we haven't leveraged technology a little bit better. Folks who are pretty sick don't always want to just go to a place. Sometimes there can be alternatives that are quite reasonable and, in fact, appreciated. So I'm hoping to see some innovation around that area.
3: And in fact, we've also seen some legislative change. So I believe that the recent bill being passed will allow, for instance, hospice providers to do certain types of visits like face-to-faces online, as well as in a number of states, they're now allowing nurse practitioners to practice independently, something that people have been fighting for for years. So This may cause a lot of change in our healthcare system, as well as in our educational system. Maybe changes, Naseema, that were long overdue.
2: Definitely. I feel like we're super behind the curve for healthcare. I mean, in a time where we have everything at our access, you know, in our smartphones, I feel like this will accelerate some of that learning and embracing of technology.
3: Lynn, we are in an interesting place because we are part of a personal finance and financial independence community, but we are also healthcare practitioners and know a lot about the insides and outsides of disease and how our healthcare system works. What would you tell the people in our community who maybe are not as savvy or don't know as much about healthcare, but are very interested in their finances and afraid of what's coming with our economy?
0: Here's what I've learned. I've learned that we don't know what's going to happen in the future. And there's a lot of decisions that we can make in the present that can help mitigate some of that risk. What I've found in general with people, with humans, is that one of the important things in life is actually to come together to solve complex problems. What I hope is that we have the ability and the opportunity to do that now where many of us are seeing the same enemy. And in a time where our country has been divided in many, many ways, this could be a potential for unity around a common issue. So as far as actionable things to do, I would say stop looking at your stock market right now. (laughs) Be careful about what you see on social media because anxiety without effort, it's just not a good place to be. And try to find something good that you can put that nervous energy toward that adds value so that when you look back 10 or 20 years from now, you appreciate the way that you handled yourself in a challenging time.
3: Nasima, dare I quote Susie Orman? Doesn't she say something to the extent of people first and money second?
2: Yes, I think that's right. Do want to kind of answer that question a little bit that you just asked Lynn. And I think we should take our health insurance a little bit more seriously. I think in the fire community, we're like bare minimum. And Lynn has some excellent resources for health insurance for people who are close to firing. But I feel like we look at the price tag as opposed to the services often. And so that's an opportunity for us. But yes, people first, then money. (laughs)
3: And Lynn, you know, there are a lot of people out there talking about how this recession will take a lot of people who thought they were financially independent and cause them to fall below that kind of 25 times barrier we often put up. But it also hits me that probably those of us who've been working towards financial independence, whether we can call ourselves at that level or not, are probably more prepared for what's happening now than most other people.
0: I think a lot about this twenty-five times number, and about if we hit a recession, that's thirty percent. You know, then we're at seventeen times, and and how that works exactly. But for me, the reality is, I think about Doc. You saw that I gave a presentation on the eight forms of capital, and money is just one of them. In times of difficulty, and I would say for a lot of people, this is a time of difficulty. Finance is one. Arm of that. There is social capital, there is experiential capital. I mean, not to get too woo woo, but if you feel plentiful in those other areas of capital, if you take a 30% hit in your financial capital, you have the ability to feel resilient.
3: I think that's an important point because right now people are not feeling very resilient. And I think as healthcare people, we walk the line of trying to tell people the truth of what's happening but we also don't wanna knock them down off that perch of resilience. So I think it's really nice the way you put it is resilience is made up of many different factors and capital is just one of them. Having community, having knowledge, having skills and having our health are all important too. And so it makes me thankful to be part of a community like this. I think it's important that we as healthcare practitioners though tell our truths so that people can at least benefit from our experience from what we're seeing on the ground. Nasima, we're quite isolated. That's part of the problem is the shelter-in-place really isolates you from the rest of the world. So we know what's happening a little bit because we're dealing with some of the healthcare problems. Nassima, you're going into the hospital on a regular basis. You get to see it. But if you're an average person who doesn't work in healthcare, all you get to do is see what's on your social media feed. It might be really hard to know what's really happening out there in the world.
2: It is, but I think what people can do is kind of just get a pulse of what's happening in the world and use this as an opportunity to connect in different ways. I've seen so many things evolve, you know, as far as virtual parties, Zoom meetups, like all these kind of things. And so I think that it can be isolating, but take this as an opportunity to reach out to people and connect with people, check in with people and see how people are doing while you may have, may or may not have a little downtime because this homeschooling is real. Okay. (laughs)
3: Lynn, any other suggestions on how we can keep emotionally as well as physically healthy in these difficult times?
0: Yes. I'm laughing because homeschooling I am. What I do is go for a walk, which helps my sanity a little bit. And I hide coins in the forest. I mean, I'm just making this stuff up. And then the kids go around and they pull on tree branches and they think that the coins magically appear. And I call that PE. One of the things that's helping me is keeping humor. We have a car that we call COVID car and her locks are acting up lately. I think she doesn't like being called COVID car because the alarm goes off every time I try to get in now. Um, And I'm not making fun of the disease. That's not at all it. We have to keep our humor. I have leopard print shoes that I just got. And those are my COVID shoes where I keep those separate. And I look at them and they make me happy. Finding these little sources of joy in our life that kind of make us giggle inside because this is so serious and so sad sometimes to just help keep resilience and stay connected. And the way we're going to stay connected is going to look different than it has been. And so how can we figure out how to navigate that? Because those social ties are extremely important, especially now.
3: I would add to what you're saying, Lynn. Nisima. people don't understand, especially in healthcare, we tend to have some gallows humor. And that's part of dealing with life and death, sometimes on a regular basis. Our humor can occasionally seem inappropriate. I think, as Lynn was saying, sometimes you have to find things to laugh at, even in the midst of things going wrong. So gallows humor is one of the things we use. I'm sure that there are no lack of COVID jokes, even as people are desperately trying to protect themselves and protect their patients.
2: (laughs) Yes. Like the whole, I feel a little sore throat. Rona, is that you?
3: (laughs) Rona. I like that. Corona. Rona.
2: Well, yeah, we call it in the community, the Rona, you know, it's no COVID, the Rona. (laughs) The Rona.
3: All right. Well, I wanted to thank you, Nasima and Lynn. I thought it would be helpful that people could hear from some healthcare practitioners to at least see what we're seeing out in the world. No one wants to overestimate or overstate what's happening. On the other hand, part of the problem with dealing with the unknown, as Lynn was saying, and viruses is that sometimes by the time you know what the problem is, it's already too late. But we all are hoping that everybody stays safe, that you maybe put down your social feeds occasionally or at least take what you read with a grain of salt. I am currently sheltering in place. I plan to do that for certainly the next few weeks, if not longer. Naseema, you think you will be in the house for quite a while when you're not at work?
2: Uh, Yeah, I go to work and come home. I'm already stocked up, you know, not on toilet paper, but on like food and vitamins, like the things that I actually need. So I'm good.
3: Lynn, do you have enough toilet paper? This is very important.
2: Well, I got a bidet,
0: doc. (laughs) So (laughs) with two small children and a dog, it's been interesting. But yeah, we have a bidet and we've got lots of food. We are limiting contact, even if we weren't mandated to do so. I feel an obligation to do that. There's no reason for me not to, and I want to reduce transmission. But yeah, I feel well stocked up. And I also feel like I have a good sense of community, even though I don't see people directly.
3: Well, I wanted to thank you guys for coming on. Please stay safe and we will talk again later. Thank you. Are you ever scrolling through your Facebook feed and wonder, boy, I wish I could listen to another episode of the Earn and Invest podcast? Well, now you can engage in our content in two different ways. One, you can go to our website, www.earnandinvest.com. That's E-A-R-N-A-N-D-I-N-V-E-S-T.com. Or you can check us out on Facebook at the Earn and Invest Facebook group. The easiest way to get there is www.diversify.com/backslash Facebook. That's D I V E R S E F I.com/backslash Facebook. We hope to see you there and engage with our community on topics very similar to the ones you'll find on the podcast. Despite technical difficulties, we survived.
5: <laughs> uh, man, From the chief technology so officer, of course. I mean, yeah. uh,
3: you, yeah. you realize, William, there's there's uh, no amount of fun we can't have with this <laughs> in the future.
1: <laughs> sure, my promise. I follow the Sun Wu way in my own tech. So I've got got Linux systems and kind of cobbled together my own network. So sometimes things don't cooperate.
3: But yeah, often. yeah, you guys but, always yeah. make it so darn complicated. You're... Especially if you have any trepidation, this is going to be a strange episode, just as most of my episodes. Are strange. <laughs> so, looking back now, a, a little distance, how was your campfire experience? Looking back on it,
4: it was awesome. I was actually—I was in—I just got back in San Francisco yesterday, actually, and I was telling people about it, <laughs> and like you know, what a, like a fun event that was, and actually, I've gotten some non people who have not been familiar with the community to think about going (laughs) this morning and he's like oh yeah i've like listened to that like you know what's up next and like that's a pretty big one like
3: (laughs) yeah we Uh, try we try to fool people so make sure
4: (laughs) yeah so thank you for having me i was about to say now that
3: you're on we're really big look look at william right now that's what i call zoom face it's that perplexed look of, I can't figure out my audio. What the hell's going on? <laughs> <laughs> we had this whole joke about resting Zoom face. <laughs> this happens every recording. Every <laughs> recording, someone's like, I can't get the Zoom to work.
5: Ideally work for an uh, engineering consulting company. Got it. Yeah.
3: You mean you're not then retiring? Isn't that what you're supposed to do? Finish <laughs> school and then retire?
5: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, people joke that that's, that's what would happen, but... Uh... That's not quite the
3: reality. <laughs> it all sounds good until reality
5: sets in. <laughs> I mean, some. I mean, he's the he's supposed to be the chief technical officer. I was going like, to
3: say, what's wrong yeah. with you people? I can't see Sunwoo and I can't hear William. <laughs> and he's the only one who got our shit together here, man. What's going on? This is actually the whole podcast is us recording. William trying to get get, get audio. That's going to be it.